Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community. A number of founding teams that have met in there. A number of nonprofits that have been established a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Andrew Savage, head of sustainability and member of the founding team of Lime. Lime is revolutionizing micromobility and empowering a new urban lifestyle. They let riders easily find and unlock their fleet of shared smart bikes, scooters, and now mopeds providing them with a fun, efficient, and sustainable way to move around the city. As a founding member of the company, Andrew led new market development, government relations, and policy strategy and also helped the company expand globally to its first 100 markets while raising over $700 million and growing to over 700 employees along the way. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, including the origin story for the company, their progress to date, their long vision, and what's coming next. We also talk about Andrew's role and how the sustainability function came to be, when and why it came to be, as well as what the business case was to start investing more explicitly in this area. We cover some of the key initiatives that they've done to date to make the company more sustainable. And we also talk about the future, not only in terms of how to make micromobility more sustainable over time, but also transportation, the future of cities, and the broader climate puzzle in general. I enjoyed this one, and I hope you do as well. Andrew, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you. Great to have you. It's funny, I had Melinda Hansen back when she was at Bird, back on the show, what feels like a decade ago, although maybe it was six months or a year ago. And and Lime, of course, is is another kind of formidable company in a similar category and excited to bring you on both to get a different perspective from one of the leaders, but also, I mean, six months or a year in pandemic time, a lot changes. Yeah, it sure does. I think pandemic time really underscores it. We have seen a ton of change in this space in the last 12 months in response to the pandemic. And 
I think it's a really interesting time for mobility, for sure. Well, there's plenty of threads I want to pull on there, but before we get too far down that path, maybe we should just take it from the top. Uh, what is Lime? Yeah, so we are a shared micromobility company that operates e-scooters, e-bikes, and e-mopeds. And we're now operating in over 130 markets across the globe, which covers over 30 countries. And our mission really is to change how urban mobility functions. And what we're looking to do is build the transportation of the future, which we think is shared, is electric, and is ultimately carbon free. And how did the company come about? What was the origin story? So we originally started as Lime Bike. We were a bike share company. And if you might remember, about four years ago, there was a boom in bike sharing, particularly in China. And we were essentially looking to bring that to the United States in a way that could help solve urban mobility challenges, the first and last mile challenge, which had vexed cities for, for generations or since their origin, or at least since the car. And we began with an app, we began with a bike, and began with a few very small markets like Key Biscayne, Florida, and a small part of Los Angeles, and Tahoe. And we would essentially try to get any operational experience that we could get to prove the concept and, and learn the operations and perfect the service. And when was that? So that was four years ago. So it was 2017. So, so it seems like it's all happened very quickly because, I mean, give us a sense. What kind of scale are you at today? Yeah, our scale now is we have done over, our riders have taken over 200 million trips. The last 100 million happened in half the time as the first 100 million. We've expanded modes, as I mentioned at the outset. We now we do offer e-scooters, we have an e-bike, and we have e-mopeds, which were actually just introduced last week. And we're global. And no so, electric skateboards yet. No electric skateboards, <laughs> no. That, that could be coming. You never know. We can talk about that, about where we're headed. And well, I love my electric skateboards. I actually have, I have like a long one that's better for long-distance riding and things like that. And then I have a short one that's kind of better for carving or if you need to carry it around the city or things. And I have a blast with it, although, I mean, this morning I just got back from physical therapy and it was from a skateboard fall, so, oh, no. <laughs> you know, there are some drawbacks, especially when you get a little more, a little older and, and more brittle. Yeah, well, I hope you wear a helmet when you wear it. I, I cannot confirm nor deny. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> and so tell me, I mean, you told me a little bit about kind of where the company started, but how did it come about? And maybe we should even start before that. I mean, how did you come to, like, did you come at it from a sustainability place? Did you come at it from a, from a bike riding place? Did you come at it from an entrepreneurship place? Like, you know, what was it that led you to co-founding this company? Yeah. So uh, I think most immediate was what, which led me to Lyme was I had actually spent a year living in Bogota, Colombia, and I had worked in the solar industry for a number of years through that time prior and post. And as my wife and I were actually moving west to California, I started talking to folks in the solar industry. And one of the individuals in the solar industry knew about my time in Bogota, knew about the cycling culture that existed there, my love for cycling. Now, I'm less of an urban cyclist and more of a get out in the country and the mountain cyclist, but at the same time can really appreciate cycling's impact on urban mobility and sustainability. And he connected me with Toby and Brad, who were at the time starting the company. 
And it was very clear from the outset that the company was going to need strong government relations and policy, given the implications on, on you know, city life and how governments were going to regulate the service. And it really, for me, fit with my goals on sustainability. I had spent six years in the solar industry talking about the electrification of transportation and saw shared transportation, electrified transportation, bikes at the time evolving into new products as a real way to move the needle on carbon. And so that's what led me to the company and led me to work with Toby and Brad and the founding team to kick the company off. Now, I know that in addition to being a co-founder that you're running sustainability for the company now, I mean, was was sustainability always part of the core mission at Lime? And was there always a sustainability team? Or tell me a little bit about how that role and function came about and, and when that occurred as well. Yeah, it, it was definitely something that evolved. I would say that, you know, with any startup, you're trying to manage survival, growth, all those things to be able to then have a broader and bigger mission. And so I would say for the first year, first two years, sustainability was part of what we wanted to achieve, but was often, you know, taking a backseat or at least sort of, you know, lurking there in the shadows. And as we really were in trying to survive, trying to compete, trying to really build a company, what at the time we wanted to achieve was revolutionizing how urban mobility worked. We sort of knew at the, the end that there would be a sustainability play there. And it's certainly something that has always been on my mind. About two years into the company, we had introduced electric scooters. We were still doing e-bikes. And we, I think, reached a turning point where we, I think, had an opportunity to lean into the sustainability mission more. And I think it happened on two fronts. One was our riders were demanding it, and we saw in our riders that it was something that they valued. And two, our city governments wanted to see us exemplify the sustainability that fit with their mission, but also be able to communicate our sustainability potential for those cities. I mean, all these cities around the country and around the globe have their own sustainability goals and aspirations and commitments, particularly with the Paris Climate Accord. And we needed to do a better job of explaining how we could fit into that. And so at about two years at the company, I made a pitch to the founding team and said, look, I think if I pivoted over to sustainability, it really helped the company and could help us drive our mission forward and actually help us grow the business. And, and that's what I did. And so I think, you know, to sum it up, I think we, it was always there, but just wasn't something that we could fully exercise because there were always more pressing challenges. But we were able to make the pivot and begin to build the sustainability function. And I think it's in the last couple of years really blossomed into a core part of the mission of the company. So tell me about that transition from something that was kind of intuitively and maybe subliminally there to something that you were looking to be more explicit about and really treat as kind of a, you know, a core pillar with KPIs and accountability and things like that. Where does one start and where did you start when making that transition? Yeah, I think it started a bit just intuitively because it had always been there as part of the company. And so one of the first actions that we did was commit to charging our newly electrified fleet on renewable energy. Now, this seems like a no-brainer, but at the time we were the first micromobility company to make that commitment and, and begin the practice of charging electrified fleets on renewable energy for shared micromobility. And that's a function that we still, of course, continue and have 
move from there well beyond that. And so I think in some ways the sort of starting with the intuitive things makes a ton of sense, but then building it into the function of the company and the practices of the company up and down and throughout. You know, we just announced a Ride Green initiative in the fall, which brings that together in a more sort of fulsome state in that we made net zero commitment and we're committed to a science-based target. We expanded our renewable energy commitment to include all of our facilities. And we've committed to shift all of our operations vehicles to electric vehicles. And so I think what that shows is sort of the evolution of sustainability as part of the company. And in fact, out of that Ride Green initiative, we've modified and revised our company mission around, as I said at the outset, building the transportation of the future that is one shared, it's lower resources, two electric, it allows you to power on renewable energy, and three carbon free. And that's an aspiration for the company of operating in a decarbonized future, which we know is critical for addressing the climate crisis. Now, you're not going to get much debate from me about how that's clearly the right thing to do. But I guess one question that that I have is, what is the business case for for those actions? Well, let me take our electrified operations fleet as an example. It was something that I wanted us to do for many months before we made the commitment. But what it took was actually doing a total cost of ownership study, a TCO study from our procurement team of what would be the cost and what would be the benefit of making that transition. And lo and behold, it turned out that it was actually good for the company's bottom line to make that transition. And now that's not to say that all of our sustainability commitments are good for the bottom line from a dollars and cents perspective. I mean, buying renewable energy sometimes is more expensive, sometimes it's less expensive. It doesn't you know, necessarily always compute that uh, sustainability commitment will save the company money. But I think to your question, it's a great example of a major commitment that actually makes the company more profitable. And so I think it's those types of opportunities that really help reinforce the sustainability mission. I think there's another piece that's not just a, on the on the financial ledger. It's what do our consumers, riders of our product, and what do our regulators, cities and governments expect of us and want to see of us? And how does that influence the business as well? And in terms of just initially getting your bearings around what your footprint looked like and what areas were ripest for change. How did you get your heads around that carbon accounting piece? Was that a lot of work? Were there any outside tools and resources that you built? Did you have to build tools in-house? Was it a very manual process? What did that look like? Yeah, I'll be really candid. Some of it is ongoing. Where we started as a company was two plus years ago, we initiated our first life cycle analysis for our product. Now, that actually looked at extensively throughout the business from manufacture to shipping into market to the operations of the scooters to the repair and reuse of the scooters to the end of life when they're ultimately parts need to be recycled. And so we, through that exercise, we had done actually two of them in that two-year period. We had a pretty good sense of the majority of our carbon impact, because that is the bulk of the business, everything from bringing the scooter to market and, and seeing it through its end of life. Certainly there's some things in the corporate side, you know, 
keeping the lights on in the office, et cetera, that weren't in a life cycle analysis. But what that did was it gave us a really clear sense of the things that we needed to improve on. It showed that length of life of a scooter was critical in life cycle. That's a no brainer, but it showed us that, you know, if you can increase length of life by 50% or hundred percent, you'd have a really big impact on the life cycle of the, of the product. And I'm really proud to say that we actually have increased the lifespan dramatically. Early scooters simply didn't last long enough. So we went from having the details of life cycle analysis to expanding that work, which is looking at throughout the business, top to bottom, everything from services that are contracted to activities that happen at warehouses or offices to understand our full picture. And that's what's helping us set our carbon goals and then be able to scale towards the net zero goal that we have for 2030. Have you come across anything so far that would be high impact for you to do, but that the business case is not there today? It's a great question. I think that, for example, high impact certainly would be using post-consumer materials for the entire or the vast majority of the products. And that is one that I'm really interested in and want to see us pursue. It's more costly and it, it takes some diligence on the supply chain side. It's something we're looking at very carefully because we think it's a really strong sustainability. It has a really strong sustainability impact. I'm happy to say that still the majority of the scooter's volume right now does come from post-consumer material because of the frame making up the vast majority of the weight, but there's more we could do there. I think that's an example for sure. One thing that I'm really excited about is looking at the end of life. We have designed our scooters to be much more repairable and, and actually modular, so parts can be swapped in and out of the scooter, which really helps our local operations teams repair scooters and keep them on, on the streets longer. That has an enormous impact on sustainability and the life cycle. And now what we're doing is we have some exciting Second Life partnerships where once a part can't be reused anymore, take a battery that we don't have the capacity to refabricate, we actually have some Second Life partners where they're actually taking apart cells, taking apart the battery for these cells, finding the ones that are still good and putting them into consumer products. And I think that's a really exciting one. And, and from a business perspective, that's a no-brainer from a financial perspective. As you look at the current life cycle, both of the scooters and I guess across the, the other aspects of your business as well, are there key gaps, uh, things that maybe you would be waiting for from innovation standpoint outside of the company that you haven't seen anybody solve yet that you're hoping that somebody does? Well, I think, I think shipping is a space that from a sustainability perspective could have an enormous impact on carbon. And I think we would like to see the cleaning of the transport sector. We know, of course, that there are, you know, cleaner modes and more polluting modes. Air shipping, for example, is incredibly polluting for the, the volume of what you can ship. So it's something that we've weaned out of our business for both cost and sustainability reasons. But I think the transport sector is one that is ripe for carbon reduction. And I haven't seen as much progress there as I would hope that we could have made by now. And what are some examples of what one might do around shipping to help make it cleaner? It's a good question. You know, it's actually one that I'm not an expert in by any means, but I'm thinking I've seen some pilots and some commitments from 
transport industries around low carbon fuels, around certainly around the freight sector in terms of train use is an exciting potential. But candidly, it's one that I don't have my hands around. And I think it's one that would be exciting to see where the, the sector can go, because it's still a significant portion of, of carbon pollution globally that will need to be solved. One way that we can help solve it is thinking about where we produce the scooters, how we order them, how frequently we need to order them, et cetera. And that's all stuff that we do think about on a regular basis. And it sounds like you're still kind of zeroing in on the full life cycle from that carbon accounting standpoint. But as you continue to get your brain around it and it's becoming clearer and clearer where the gaps are and what the delta is between you know where you are and, and where you might need to be, are there any thoughts or, or maybe any actions today about what you're doing about the difference? You know, do you do any offsetting or carbon credits or negative emissions or anything like that? Yeah, so we have bought carbon offsets for the operations of our fleet. So in a market where we've had to use combustion vehicles, something that, as I mentioned, we're scaling away. What we did do in November was set a commitment to a science-based target, which as you know, sort of put loops in all of that. And so over the next few years and immediately following the carbon study that we're doing, full company-wide carbon study that's wrapping up right now, we'll have really clear visibility into the carbon impact of various sectors of the business beyond life cycle, which we were talking about, and be able to set really clear and measurable targets to go forward. So I'm actually really looking forward to that because what I have found at this company is that when you have the data and when you have the insights, we tend to actually choose really positive directions for the company. And it's really a matter of grabbing that data and being able to make the case for it. Now, when I listen to you talk, I, I mean, I think it's commendable that you're out there as a, you know, as an individual and as a company trying to do the right thing and trying to take steps to make the company more sustainable. I can't help but wonder, though, I mean, it seems like not many companies out there percentage wise are going to feel like you guys do and act like you guys are. And so I'm going to say a statement as if it's a statement, but it's really a question that I want you to just, you know, kind of agree or disagree with. And then, you know, if you agree, why? If you disagree, why? And, and that's that in order to get any meaningful percentage of companies to move, this whole, you know, pretty please is not a strategy and it's going to take mandates and regulation. Do you agree or disagree? I do agree. And, you know, my background, actually, I came from a policy and political background. I worked in Congress when we passed the first and really only sweeping climate legislation in the U.S. House, which then was stalled in the Senate, if you might remember. And so I actually do believe that strong climate regulation is important. I think we need to move the needle to bring sort of those who aren't compelled to act for other reasons, economic, consumer, regulatory, you know, they need to be brought along. So when I mention regulatory, I mean, local governments, for example, regulate us versus state or federal typically. So I think what is really encouraging is that the business cases for sustainable actions have really blossomed. I mean, you're seeing solar prices that in 15 years drop dramatically wind the same. You're seeing electric vehicle proliferation across the truck sector, the pickup truck sector, vehicles, passenger vehicles. That all is because of, in part, regulation, but in part because there's just a good business case for it. These vehicles last longer. They have lower cost of ownership. They are good for the consumer. 
But there's always a piece that where regulatory can move the needle and move it faster. And for this climate crisis, we've got to move faster. And do you have a sense when it comes to micromobility or even the transportation sector more broadly, what the most impactful types of regulation would be? And also, at least from a U.S. standpoint, whether that would come from the state or federal government? Well, I think from a micromobility perspective, you know, we don't, I don't believe we need a lot of regulation to move the needle because it's all happening. And I think there's actually a race to the top right now in this industry around sustainability and the commitments that we make and and how we're operating our businesses. We started the company and we were seen often as disruptors, right? We were new, we were using the public space in a different way. The pandemic, which we haven't touched on yet, really actually changed that. Within weeks of the pandemic hitting, we had letters from city governments from around the world saying, you're an essential service. You are a transit mode that's socially distant and we need you on the street. And for me, as a, you know, having been with the company for the arc of disruption to essential service is really, I think, a fascinating place. And where I'm getting at is I think less around regulating the industry of how to be sustainable, but more, how do we have this industry flourish? I mean, there are, we're in 130 cities around the globe. There are another 130 cities and then some that could benefit from having low carbon, zero carbon forms of short distance transportation. And that's how we move the needle is to have a wider proliferation of of zero carbon transport options. I mean, you are way closer to it than I am, but my impression from the cheap seats is that things like permitting are way too slow at the city and municipality level and really make it hard to move quickly in the space. And also just the lack of infrastructure as it relates to safe places to ride, bike lanes, things like that. So how much is that a factor and and how much headwind is that creating for the industry at this point? Yeah, you're spot on about infrastructure. We strongly believe that the infrastructure in our cities needs to be improved for micromobility and other forms of non-car transportation. The cars sit idle 96% of their lives. And yet think about the enormous amount of space that they take up in parking garages and on-street parking and how dramatically the future of a city could be altered if we were able to remove a significant amount of that parking. I mean, think about parking garages turned into affordable housing so people could actually live where they work. What a novel concept that is. Or think about the on-street parking that could be a protected bike lane. So it is absolutely a headwind, but in many ways, I think we're providing the use case and the evidence that cities should make these investments. I mean, we're able to and regularly share data with our city partners on where people are riding. That gives them a pretty clear indication of where they should invest resources into protected transportation, like bike lanes and protected lanes. So I think it's a real opportunity for cities to to grow smarter and to be able to think about a more interconnected transportation system. How do we interconnect with public transit is always something that we're thinking about. And then back to your question about regulations, I think it's because we aren't going to cities and saying, we need money to operate in your city. You know, we're not looking for a concession or looking for a business that requires government funding. We want to operate in the ecosystem and operate in a way that is 
in the same standing as you know vehicles have today. And that is a legitimate form of essential transportation, which we've now found post-pandemic is to be quite critical to people. And I guess taking a step higher Zoom level than just looking at micromobility and transportation, but if you just look at cities, it seems like prior to the pandemic, and I'm no expert on the up-to-date data, but that that there was an influx of people moving into cities over the last many years. And it seems like during the pandemic, maybe things have been going the other way as people try to get to places where they, you know, they get out of studio apartments and things like that and get a little more space and, uh, you know, less people around and maybe you don't have to wear a mask all the time and, and things like that. What is your impression in terms of what do you think the future of cities will be and what do you hope that the future of cities will be and to what extent are those aligned or, or different? Yeah, I mean, I still feel really strongly that the future of the city is bright. I think it's an incredibly important part of our community and our society to have well-functioning, vibrant cities. So I think this pandemic is a bit of a blip and I think that will massage over in, in the near future when we get past this. You know, it, cities can, if designed well, be an incredibly low carbon place to live because you can live in a place where you work and can socialize in a place where you live. And there's a really virtuous cycle there. And you can have very clean modes of transportation when you need it versus someone living on the country having to drive into town every time they want groceries or having to commute to work. 40 or 80 miles, like that's not very good for the environment from a resources perspective or from a carbon perspective. So I think that the future of cities is really bright when you think about being really smart about how you design them and how you think about removing car dominance and thinking about how to bring cities back for the people in which they were originally designed. I think someone like Mayor Hidalgo in Paris, she's developed this concept of the 15-minute city. And it's a really progressive way of thinking about how cities can be designed around people, around having access to the things you need within 15 minutes in a low carbon way. And I think that, if embraced, is the future of urban life. And then in your wildest dreams, if micromobility spreads its wings and reaches its full potential, and if Lyme spreads its wings and reaches its full potential, what does that future look like and how does Lyme and how does micromobility fit into that? Yeah, well, I mean, 60% of all car trips are under five miles. And we view that sort of under five mile space as being perfect for forms of micromobility. Until last week, we didn't actually have a, a mode that could actually cover that five miles. It's not the easiest thing for everybody to bike five miles or scoot five miles. So the introduction of e-mopeds, for example, is helping us further achieve that sort of five mile direction. And I think we'll see continued innovation of products for people that have diverse needs within cities. If you're going to drop kids off of school or, or get groceries, et cetera, we need to think about continuously innovating for that distance. And so, you know, thinking about that five mile circumference or that distance, one, we need more modes. Two, thinking about working with our cities around a dramatic reuse of space. And if we're good, smart about this, we can think about how to 
relegate cars in the place where they should be, which is not in the urban core of, of cities. We've seen a number of European cities and even some progressive cities in the United States think about how to prohibit combustion vehicles and in the future, personal vehicles in downtown core center. So I think there's a real opportunity to reimagine how cities look, cars going to the outside, zero carbon transportation on the inside. And that would allow us to dramatically think about where are parks and where is protected bike lanes and where can we have affordable housing in a real harmonious way. So does that mean that there's no world where there are EVs in Lyme's future? I wouldn't say that. I definitely wouldn't say that. Although I would say it's not something that is in our near future or something that we're actively pursuing at the moment. You know, one thing that, that we feel really strongly about is the carbon-free commitment and the electrified commitment. You won't see us doing something that, that doesn't align with that mission. Uh-huh. Great. And then if there were one thing that you could change that were completely outside of your control that would most accelerate the adoption of micromobility, what would that thing be and what would you change about it? Oh man, these one thing questions are tough because, you know, immediately a whole list goes running through your head of things that you'd want to modify. You know, I think that I would think about something like as simple or maybe as wonky as congestion pricing. Like, how can we think about really capturing the externalities of our commitment to cars and cities in a way that motivates people to rethink how they live their life. And I'm not saying that it has to be a burden. We've actually seen in the time of pandemic and lower congestion in cities, people really loving to live in their communities. So I think that we need to be thinking about how does how do policy mechanisms, to your question earlier, help bring along and account for the evils that happen with, with car use. And I have a car, so I'm not saying that it's all evil. I'm just saying that there's a place for them. And if we can find a better innovation to move one or two miles in a city, we should be doing that. So how active, if at all, is Lyme on the policy front? And if you're active, in what ways does that manifest? Yeah, it's a great question. And I love the space. So um, you'll have to cut me off if I go too long on this one. But we're pretty active. And I think we're continuing to find our voice on the sustainability and climate front. We recently launched a partnership with World Wildlife Fund, WWF, across 14 different countries, where one of the goals is to be leveraging our joint interest in civic action and helping people think about their their modes of choice and also getting engaged in policy issues around lower carbon city living. That's one example. I mean, we are a member of the We Are Still In Coalition and the EV100 as well, where we're advocating for policies that will help bring on more commercial electric vehicles, because that's a big way to move the needle is if you can electrify the commercial fleet in this country and across the globe. So, you know, we're eager to get our hands dirty on policy issues that help think about and move the needle on on reducing carbon pollution. And I think you'll see as we mature, you'll see that continue to deepen. One thing that is really, I think, exciting and interesting is that we have tens of millions of people on our platform, and that is a real opportunity to align our carbon goals with their potential desire to to be active on those issues. And so that's a potential that, that you could see in the future as well. 
And I guess one question I, f- I forgot to ask just in terms of how you go to market. So it sounds like you go in on a city by city basis. Is it something that the cities are actually providing as a service? And do you need a formal partnership with the cities in order to set up shop? Yeah, that's very typical. In the early days of the industry, it was the Wild West and no one, you know, most cities didn't know what the technology was and didn't know how to regulate it. Now, virtually every example that I can think of, cities are either choosing a few operators to operate in their city, like Paris, for example, they chose three operators, Lime was chosen to operate in Paris, or they lay out the rules of the road and you operate within those rules of the road. It's typically regulated at the local or municipal level. Sometimes there's some state or provincial regulations that you have to follow as well, but typically it's done at the local level. And to the extent that there are commonalities, what is the biggest barrier or objection that you need to overcome when establishing new municipal relationships? Yeah, I think one that I'm not afraid to throw out there because anyone who's seen micromobility or heard of it will raise is the question of, is there clutter or isn't there clutter? And, you know, where are these things parked? And, you know, it comes up all the time and a few things have happened that have helped with that significantly. One is just simple technologies that we've been able to deploy that have helped either educate riders on where to park or steer people to parking corrals. Another thing we do is we require riders to take pictures of their parked scooter or bike so we know that they have both consciously parked it in a place that's appropriate and we also have the picture of it and we can use that for various things, potentially like AI and other innovations. That has helped a ton on the rider side. I also think that it has, as micromobility has become more commonplace in cities around the globe, two things have happened. One is those who don't like micromobility or just want to cause ruckus tend to leave scooters and bikes alone. It just has become a part of the fabric of these cities. So they're just less tampering and fewer issues. And secondly, cities are starting to carve out a little bit more space for micromobility. They've seen the carbon benefits. They have embraced the concept. And so they're saying, okay, maybe we should make some space just like we do for cars or for you know personal bikes for micromobility. So all of those things are kind of melding together to make for a much more clutter-free and, and more organized micromobility system. Now, the benefits of micromobility and dockless remain that you can find one via the smartphone and you can then park it at your destination. That's been the beauty of it, the convenience. And that, that remains in the, almost all markets. And my, my last line of questioning is just around the fact that you started this company and didn't have an explicit sustainability role and then carved one out for yourself mid-ride. And I think there's a lot of people, whether they're co-founders of companies or in functional roles of companies, whether they're startups or they're big companies who have climate change on their mind, want to help, want to see their companies get more active, and don't really know how to go about it. So maybe just speak to those people for a minute. What do you want them to hear? What do you want them to know? What advice do you have for them in terms of how to bring about change within their companies? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's going to vary company by company, but I think what it was was embracing a broader mission of what we could accomplish as a company for our employees, for our customers, for our regulators in bringing it to the forefront of the company. I mean, we have, I haven't mentioned this before, but we've, through the 200 million rides that we've served, we've prevented through our riders 50 million car trips, one in every four trips on our platform have shifted modes from a car to 
a scooter or a bike. Those are real numbers and those are adding up quick, especially as we expand. And so I mentioned that as an example because you can really sort of calculate and use the data to show there is an impact here and we have a real potential to grow the business based on that impact. And for those who are thinking about sustainability, I think it's finding your niche and I think it's finding a space where you can carve out a sustainability practice. Where do you fit into the ecosystem of sustainability? Is it carbon reduction? Is it circularity? Is it impact and equity? Are there ways that you can think about as your business that you can say, all right, this is going to be our mark on the world. And I would say go for it because I think everyone here wants to do good as well as form a good business. And I think that's a really important thing to be thinking about. And I would say that we wouldn't be able to think about this sustainability commitment that we have as aggressively as we are now if we hadn't achieved the important milestone of being a profitable company. And that was something that we still have work to do from a, an annual perspective, but Q3 of 2020 was profitable. And that has given us some breathing room to say, okay, we are going to make it. We need to figure out how to have a strong impact on the world. And those paired together make a really strong potential of impact in the future. Andrew, awesome to have you on the show. Love learning more about the Lime story and about micromobility. And we even covered policy and future of cities and what people should do who are feeling climate motivated within their companies on how to bring about driving action in those companies. So I don't have anything else to say other than best of luck to you and the team. And thanks again for coming on the show. It's really been great, Jason. Thanks for the, the leadership on this space and, and, and all the great questions and for doing the work that you're doing. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.